All right, well, good afternoon. Sidai, thanks for tuning in. And if uh, this is your first time tuning in with our online service, thank you for being with us. Uh, I really believe that the, the word that, um, that Katie just read out from Mark, from God's Word, the Bible, is one that's for everyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you really wouldn't call yourself very religious or if you're even skeptical about the claims of Jesus. Um, what he has to say today, particularly about greatness and our desire for it, is a profound word for anyone wherever you're at. And so I'm going to pray that before we open God's word, that he would speak to us through his word, that this wouldn't just be words on a page, but the very word of God living and active. So I'm going to pray for our time now. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world, that you love us enough to speak to us, even as a father speaks to a child. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us an understanding of what you have to say to us through your son, Jesus, that as we look at his life and what he teaches us, that we wouldn't see mere opinions, but that we'd see God in the flesh speaking to us, that we'd see perfect humanity living for us, that we'd see the one who died in our place and rose in our place to bring new life, the one who speaks to us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to hear this and all for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, it's uh, our Mother's Day service, and it's a fitting time to reflect on, on the call of greatness and of mums. As if mum life wasn't hard enough already, modern life and Instagram has brought us the mumpreneur. I read an article on the mumpreneur recently, and this is a, a modern invention that adds even more criterion to the, to the role of the perfect mother. This is the, the mum who has it all together. She's the perfect friend and mum and wife. She has a wide and attractive and interesting circle of friends, a near-infinite circle. But despite having two and a half perfect, attractive, linen-beige-dressed children, she is not busy. She's not a hot mess. Her life is full of perfect serenity. You won't find her balled up and crying about her busy life because she's running a business and a family and a circle of friends and all of that. No, she'll be curled up by the fire with an interesting and profound book with some bespoke timber and brick something or other in the background as well. Despite having a career and a husband and a large circle of friends to maintain, you will also find that, I mean, you'd think that would exhaust her to the point where, where age had wearied her, but she looks forever 27 and has somehow defied the aging process. She's also creative, intelligent, and well-liked by everyone, but recently she added another feather to her cap. Now, in the midst of a global pandemic, she's also a creative and interesting home educator who started a blog in the process for each one of her children catered to their individual learning styles. All of this is mum greatness personified. Now, when you, when you say it like that, of course, it sounds ridiculous. And yet, there's a pressure that mums feel to be everything to everyone. Even last week, we, we put out just a little survey to ask any mums tuning in. To, we just asked two questions. What are you finding really challenging right now? And are there any surprising joys? And almost everyone who wrote in said they were finding this, the pressure of this current time of trying to be so many different things, wear so many different hats, and manage your mood all at the same time, as well as your kids, has just been overwhelming. Many mums feel this pressure to be this perfect mum. It's like they've got a 360 review coming up and they, they're about to be fired for, for having failed to be across all these different areas. And as silly as it sounds, many mums feel it. But even if you're not a mum, you may have felt the pressure at one point to do something significant with your life, to do something great. 
I'm approaching midlife now. I know it's hard to believe with this complexion, but it's true, guys. And I've heard that midlife is a time when people start to audit their life a little bit. You're kind of at the halfway point, and so people start to take stock of what have I done with my life, and is it tracking really halfway through to the kind of life that I want to live? And many people find it a harrowing process. One guy who you may have heard of is a guy called Chuck Barris, who brought us it brought us a lot of, I guess, the beginnings of reality television, so you can thank him for that. But he brought us things like The Dating Show and The Gong Show. He wrote a pop song. But um, the, thing that, the, thing that, the thing that introduced him to my life was that he had written a, a biography in 1984 called, I think it was called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And in it, there was a lot of things that you'd expect in there about how he made his millions and the game shows and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that no one expected was for him to confess that he was, in fact, a CIA assassin. And the reason no one expected that is because it's almost impossible that it's true. There's no, no one has been able to verify it, although I guess when you make a claim about being a secret agent, that's the handy bit, right? No one can ever verify it. But for him, there was this claim that he was a CIA assassin. And most people, the claims are so outlandish and outrageous that almost no one takes them seriously. And so the question then becomes, why, why would you put that in your biography? If you're an incredibly successful person, like he was a success in his industry by all measures, why would you make stuff up about your life? And I guess the only conclusion would be that as he looked back and audited his life in his 50s, he found it wanting, that actually he was missing something, some kind of ingredient that would give it significance and weight and gravity. Many people feel the pressure to live a life that's worth living, a a great life. The fear of missing out is the fear of of living a life that's inconsequential and not worth anything. Most of us have this this burden of being that we don't want to just mark out our days and survive. We want to do something significant. But how do we attain to true greatness? What is it and how do we get it? Well, Jesus has a lot to say on it. But more than that, he has a lot to say about the misunderstandings of greatness. In fact, the Bible would say that, that every culture in its own way has misunderstood what greatness is. But he's going to speak to his disciples about their particular misdirection when it comes to the idea of greatness. But to get into the story, we need to start a little bit earlier than the passage that Katie read out just before. So the section that we're mostly looking at is in chapter 10. But there's the roots of this story go back to chapter 9, to where we were close to last week. Have a look at Mark 9, 33 to 37. This is the background to the conversation that unfolds in, in Mark 10. It says, and they, and this is Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So they're on their way to a town called Capernaum. And I love how much this is like a modern travel story. It's almost like Jesus driving and the kids are kind of fighting in the back. And he leans over and he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, nothing. Because it seems like what they were talking about was so embarrassing for grown men to talk about that they don't really want to admit it, especially not to Jesus. But what they were arguing about in one form or another was who was the greatest. They're they're jostling for position as to who among them is the most significant of Jesus' disciples. And he obviously hears it and he does what what parents often do to kids, which is to ask them a question you obviously know the answer to because you're wanting them, by admitting it, to, I guess, own part of the problem. But they don't. So he asks them, what were you talking about? 
they say nothing. And Jesus says, just by way of commenting on it, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. But clearly, the lesson doesn't go deep. Again, like kids, he's going to have to tell them the same thing in different ways over and over and over again. Because by Mark chapter 10, it seems like they haven't learned much at all. Look what, we say, look what it says when we pick up the story in Mark 10, 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he asked them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. So James and John were brothers. And they, uh, John is, uh, wrote the Gospel of John, an account of Jesus' life. And in Mark 3.17, we're, we're told, if you're with us when we're in that chapter, we're told that they're called Boanerges, which in that language means sons of thunder. And that either means that they were pretty forceful type personalities or that they had a weight problem and Jesus was having a go at them. But it's most likely that they were, they were pretty forceful kind of characters. And it comes out in this story here. They come up to Jesus with a bold statement. Now, in other Gospels, we're actually told the full story is that they get their mum to ask him first, but Mark keeps everything short, so he's just got them making this request to Jesus, and they ask it in a funny way. They start by, by kind of trying to blindside him. They say, Jesus, give us whatever we ask for. And of course, like any smart person, Jesus says, what exactly are you asking for? And they're like, well, not much, but just to sit at your right and your left in glory. You've got to think, that is a bold request, isn't it? They've misunderstood greatness. And the thing about those who want to be great is they often want to be near great people. There's a, a principle kind of a, that goes around in, in sort of motivational talks and, and speeches about proximity power, that you are the average of your five closest friends. And the idea being, if you hang out with losers, you'll be a loser, and you hang out with winners, and you'll be a winner. And here, they, they want to be great. And they see that Jesus is an up-and-coming star. Crowds are starting to gather around him. People want to know about him. And they're kind of in his inner circle. And so they don't want to just be in the inner circle. They want to be in the inner circle, in the inner circle. So they say to Jesus, Jesus, can we be at your right and your left? We know that you're going to be the king. We established that a couple of chapters ago when Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, the king. So they know his time is coming. And they're like, when that time comes... We want to be at your right and your left. Because when it comes to a king, his closest and most trusted and most powerful people are right by his side because they're the ones who have access to kill him. They're the ones that he trusts the most. And so they're saying, they're humbly asking for the most significant position in the universe next to Jesus. Next to Jesus, of course. And Jesus responds to this in an interesting way and maybe in a way that you wouldn't expect. Look what he says in Mark 10. 38 to 40. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, he said, and they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't, doesn't immediately rebuke them for requesting greatness or for seeking greatness. And you might expect him to do that. Even if you're someone listening, you're, you're not particularly religious, you might have heard something about what Jesus was like and expect that he's going to bat back any kind of desire to be great. But he doesn't. 
He seems to be saying that the, the desire for greatness, to want to live a significant life, is a good one. But he's going to start directing them in a different way. He starts by asking them a question and he says, Can you drink the cup from which I drink? And this is, Jesus often speaks to his disciples in metaphors that they don't immediately understand and that we don't often either. But they also, because they don't want to look stupid, just immediately say, yep, sure. Even though it tells us that they don't really know what he's talking about. They're like, um, yep, yep, we can drink that cup. But the cup in the Old Testament, the idea that Jesus is drawing from in the Bible, is the idea that Jesus will suffer. It's the cup of suffering that he's going to drink. And he's saying to them, you want to be great? You want to follow in my footsteps? Just know that I'm going to suffer. Do you want to do that too? And they say yes, not fully knowing that what, they're, what they're signing up to. But it's true. James and John suffer for the sake of Jesus. James is the first disciple who is killed, beheaded in, the, gospel of, in, the, in the, the account in Acts. He's the first disciple to be killed for following Jesus. And John, his brother, is the last surviving disciple, exiled on the island of Patmos, who writes the last book of the Bible. They do suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. But Jesus here is going to redefine greatness. He's going to explain to them an understanding of greatness that is different to the one that they have in mind. He says, there is greatness to be sought, but it's not the kind that you're thinking. And so he goes on to explain in Mark 10, 41 to 45, he says this. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man not came, did not come to be served, sorry, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the ten hear that James and John have gone up to ask Jesus this, they get mad. Because the truth is, when people are seeking greatness and the kind of greatness that involves being better than other people, the kind that Jesus here is rejecting, it turns people against one another. If you want to be great and you want to be great among people, it will lead to jealousy. It would lead to jealousy of those who get ahead of you, especially those who get ahead of you in, in a way that, you, that seems unfair, where they didn't have to work as hard or as thoroughly as you have. But even if you get there, it will lead you to look down on other people. The kind of greatness that sets someone above their peers, the kind that they're seeking here, is the kind that causes jealousy. And here, it's causing friction among the disciples. They're annoyed. And they're not annoyed because this request is ungodly or something like that. They're annoyed because they didn't think of it first. And they're like, now James and John are going to get ahead of us again. They're going to get the jump on the rest of us. But Jesus sees all of this going on and the mess that's going on and this, this desire for a wrong type of greatness and he decides to set them straight. And he says to them, if you're going to be a follower of me, you're going to, you're going to, be, the kind of, of, you're going to be going after the kind of greatness that involves going down to go up. That you're going to be the kind of greatness that actually is a servant rather than a lord over others. Jesus says to them, in, in their culture at their time, those who ruled over them, those who were considered powerful or great, lord it over other people. They use it to dominate, to rule over others. And he says, but it's not going to be so among you. If you would follow me, you're going after a greatness of a different kind. Jesus says, that they will not experience power like the others did, but they will be people who serve. 
And these are no idle words. Jesus didn't just say this stuff. He lived it out completely. Jesus is going to say to them, this is how I'm going to demonstrate power. I'm going to not be served, but serve. Isn't it the case that in our culture, we herald those who are, who are, just, who are great, who are you know, experts in their field, people who, who, who display excellence and embody success. At the moment, we're working through a, a documentary, as everyone is during isolation. But um, in the last few weeks, there was a documentary that came out called The Last Dance, which is about the, Ch- the Chicago Bulls sort of in the 90s, their, their glory days. And it takes me right back to my childhood, which again betrays my age. But uh, all, all of these things going through, I mean, mercifully, my wife was into the NBA as well. So we're, just, we're both just reliving our childhood at the same time. But looking at the rise of Jordan, it's an, it's an incredible story. We're talking about someone who not just rose to excellence within their own field, but at, at the time they're talking of them as being the greatest athlete on the planet at the time, across all sports. The Chicago Bulls franchise was basically built upon him and his success. Not only that, but the NBA and their, their sort of global um, station was really built off, off Michael Jordan and his, his success and his notoriety. More than that, even Nike was really a middling sort of shoe brand at the time and again built their brand around him. He carried not just his team but a lot of people to success and money. And at one part in the documentary as he's rising up through the ranks, an old hat in the game, Larry Bird, who's, who's you know, a Hall of Famer, who was kind of in the twilight of his career just as Jordan was, sort of, was coming to his summit, talks about uh, one particular playoff series where the Celtics, Larry Bird's team, came up against Jordan's team. And he remembers this, this young guy is just a phenomenon. And the Bulls were losing. And in the first game, Jordan puts on 50 points. And they still lose. And he comes back the next game and puts on something like 60 points. And Larry Bird makes the comment. He says, that wasn't a man. That was God in skin. And it, it actually it betrays something about what we think about true greatness, doesn't it? That's what most people imagine God would be like. Maybe not a baller specifically, but the, the thought would be if God were to put on skin and walk among us, he would embody success, fame, fortune, power, dominance, all of these things. But Jesus is saying to them, hey, I am God in flesh. I'm here. And guess what? It's not going to look how you think. It's not going to be fame, fortune, and success I haven't come to be served, I've come to serve. And more than that, he says, I've come to die as a ransom for many. Jesus is trying to explain to them here that the death that he is going to die is not going to be like every other death. It's not even like every other honorable death. He says his life is going to be a ransom. A ransom in the ancient world was an amount of money paid in order to free someone from slavery. Because the idea is if you're a slave, you cannot pay your own debt. You cannot buy your way out of slavery. Everything you earn goes to your master. There is no way to get out of it. You need someone else to bring wealth from somewhere else to pay the, pl- the price over your head, the ransom, so that you can go free. And in the story of the Bible, we separated ourselves from God, and, it, and the Bible calls this sin. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from the author of life and from life itself. And we become, it says, slaves to death. There is no way around death. No empire, no army, no, no matter how successful or great anyone has been, they have never overcome the enemy of death. At best, people have, have learned to wield death to get power, but no one has gained power over death. And Jesus says, when I die, my death 
will be a ransom to pay the price that's over your head so that you can go free and live forever. Jesus says this is true greatness. God in flesh comes to serve and to die for people who had rejected him rather than to dominate and to rule like the people of his time. It's an unbelievable thing. This is greatness personified. And we know this. I mean, even recently we commemorated the idea of sacrificing your life for someone else. On Anzac Day, we remember those who laid down their lives for us. For young men who went to war in, in, in the First World War, there was a phrase that was often used for recruiting, which was dolce decorum est pro patria morte, which means it is sweet and decorous to die for one's country. And the idea is that young men were like, look, it's worth laying down my life to save the lives of others. I will die for my country. And we honor that because it was a significant sacrifice. It was, an, it was a great act. How much more so for God to lay down his life for his enemies, for those who had turned away from him. Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He personified greatness and he redefined it. And he's saying to his disciples, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. You want to see greatness? It's laying down your life for others. See, the message of Jesus is that even though we are not great, even though we are sinners whose hearts are broken and a mess, that we have a king who is truly great. And the blessing of the Christian life of following Jesus is that it takes the pressure. You don't have to be great or live a great life. Jesus has done it for you. And you see this even in the Gospels, that Jesus' closest disciples, and look, even if you are unconvinced of the claims of the Bible, it, it's no understatement to say that Jesus' disciples are famous. We're still talking about them, whether positively or negatively, 2,000 years later. They were famous. And yet the way that they write about themselves in the Gospels that we have recorded is very humble. Peter, who, who really is probably the, the author of this Gospel that we're reading in Mark, writes about himself in a way that's pretty unflattering. Same as John or any of the others. And the reason for it is they're quite open about their own mistakes and their sinful hearts and their foolishness and their childishness because they know that they're not, they're not called to be great, that they just follow a great saviour. That their calling of their lives, the way that their life will be significant is not by being great and perfect people, but simply by following a great saviour. The pressure is off. Can I encourage you mums on Mother's Day that you don't have to be the perfect mum. That your role in raising your kids to follow Jesus is not to be a great mum, but to point them to a great saviour. The pressure in that way is off. Even last week, I shared this on the podcast, but my daughter, when I put her to bed, I tell her stories. And they're just whatever made up. They don't make any sense. You'd be very underwhelmed to hear them. But she loves them each night. And after the story, just to prolong bedtime, she gets, f she gets five comprehension questions. But she'll always bargain for more. And they're, again, silly and nonsensical. But um, one night she wanted, more, she wanted to have like seven or eight questions. I said, that's enough. It's bedtime. You need to actually go to sleep. And I started heading out the door. And she went, Dad, you are not God. You're just my father. And I remember, I mean, it was, she was being cheeky, but it was too cute not to laugh. But she made a, a fair theological point, right? I'm not God, and I never can be to her. There are all kinds of needs that only God, the creator of the universe, and her maker can fulfill. I'm just a father who's appointed to love her. But he does say, obey your parents and honor them. So catch that, Arps. But the pressure in some ways is off as a parent. 
we can admit our mistakes, we can say sorry, we can mess up and point them back to Jesus and how he is changing us and transforming us. We don't have to be God to them because they already have a God in Jesus. We don't have to be greatness personified because Jesus is. But while it's the case that we'll never perfectly emulate Jesus, what greater life could there be to lead than to emulate someone as great as Jesus? Even if it's in a small and in imperfect way. Reading a book that actually we quoted a bit last week, The Road to Character, it talks about in our culture there's an emphasis to focus on your career resume over your eulogy resume. That is to focus on all of the skills and kind of, I guess, job success that you can achieve in this lifetime without any regard for what someone would have to say at your funeral. Because the truth is, many people have been a huge success in regards to business, but they'll have very quiet funerals when it comes to their character. Even in the documentary, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan actually cites that his one regret was setting himself up as a role model. The Be Like Mike campaign, he felt set him up for failure because ultimately he's a flawed human too and there's no way anyone should emulate every part of his life. Maybe to be a basketballer like him, maybe to copy parts of his life, his diligence and hard work. But to set himself up for a role model, he said, was a mistake. Many of our, of our earthly heroes have feet of clay. Jesus alone is worth emulating. And following him is a life worth living, a life that will have weight and significance. Isn't it the case that, that success when it comes to our worldly definition of it is ultimately pretty fragile? To be a success in your field requires a whole bunch of preconditions that are out of your control. I mean, just think of COVID and, and the implications for people who are pursuing success in the sporting arena. The Olympics this year was postponed, cancelled, however you want to say it. And people who had been preparing and preparing and preparing and had done nothing wrong, had maybe even prepared and were on track for a gold medal, had it swept away from them in devastating fashion and it was completely out of their control. People who were successful in their field of, of business or study had things taken from them completely out of their control. Having worked faithfully hard, having done all the right things, it was gone like that. The truth is the worldly definition of greatness is fragile. And anything that doesn't disappear during this life, death will ultimately claim. Jesus claims to be true greatness personified. And following him and being like him is the most significant and weighty life we could live. Even during this time, even while we're in isolation, even when we have social distancing in place, even if you're at home and the kids are driving you mental, it's an opportunity, an opportunity to be more like Jesus. To see real greatness. To know that if Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived the earth, and for him it was enough to serve and not to be served, then we have an opportunity to find joy and meaning and significance in following him even at this time. I'm going to pray for us that he would open our eyes to see what it is to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you didn't just speak to us about true greatness, but you sent Jesus to demonstrate it in person to personify greatness. That in laying down his life for us, for a people who had turned away from you, that he showed us in a profound way what real greatness is. Father, forgive us for seeking after greatness that is not truly greatness, that will ultimately fade away. And teach us and tune our hearts to see the world as you see it. 
to see that Jesus has done something truly great that we could not in and of ourselves and that our lives are meant to be marked by humility, a love of Christ and of others, that we might be, just as he was, a servant of all. Father, as we fail at these things, may we be able to take ourselves lightly because we take our Savior seriously. And Father, in all of this, may you strengthen us to glorify you. Amen. In response to hearing from the Word of God, we're going we're gonna to fittingly respond by, by singing praises to Him.